There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1,006. A uh, couple things. First of all, um, I'm going to be performing at the Addison Improv, uh, which is in Addison, Texas, just outside of Dallas. Or maybe is it inside of Dallas? It is Dallas adjacent. It's kind of an industrial, businessy area. I don't think anyone lives in Addison. I think it's just businesses, but there is an Addison Improv there, and I'll be there July 25, 26, and 27. And then, uh, if you're in Raleigh, North Carolina, I'll be at Good Nights Comedy Club, August 8, 9, 10. Um, I don't believe I performed in Raleigh before, so I'm very excited about that. And this is tied into this episode, um, but I'm posting this a day early because... Um, I got to be a guest on Whose Line Is It Anyway because of this podcast that you're about to listen to because of Wayne Brady and you hear it unfold on this podcast. And it was a very big deal to me because uh, the idea of it terrified me because it's uh, Whose Line is one of the most influential comedy things in my life. Um, Will Wheaton and I, when we were roommates in the early 90s, used to watch the British version every day. I think it was on at 6 p.m. And it it completely changed open like expanded my horizons changed um you know it was one of those pivotal moments where it changed like how i see comedy and and uh and i absolutely uh, was uh floored when we're because i tell a story about how i auditioned for who's line in the early 2000s and then wayne said oh you should just come on and i was like and i did it and it was a blast um i think i did a pretty good job i don't think i mean Listen, I think I, you know, like there were there were a couple times where I I could have done better or like ah, I kind of fucked that up. But overall, I don't think I embarrassed myself, which is really what I was afraid of. But I I did this because I was a I it was a lifelong dream and I was terrified to do it. That made it very important to me. But everyone on the show was super nice. It was Proops, Colin, Ryan, Wayne, and Aisha, and um, it was an absolute dream. And the audience was incredible. It, the the producers were great. The whole experience was fun. But I believe it's the season premiere tonight. This is Monday, June seventeenth. It's on the CW. So please watch it um, tonight and also. Support Wayne Brady. Watch Let's Make a Deal. Uh, watch Who's Line. Uh, he's I, He was doing a run on The Bold and the Beautiful. Uh, he's uh, writing books. He's uh, He pitches some other shows during this podcast. He is inspirational, not just as uh, a, a multi-hyphenate guy who does a bunch of stuff that he does, by the way, brilliantly everything he does he is excels at and uh i don't know i i'm I, we wayne and i 
have had sort of parallel, we're about the same age. And so we've had these sort of parallel careers and we've always kind of seen and waved to each other from across different parts of our careers. But this was really, I mean, we've talked throughout the years. This is the first really long conversation that we've had and I love them. And now we're friends. And, uh, and as you hear in this episode, we might actually start doing some stuff together. So thank you to Wayne Brady for being a wonderful guest and a great dude. And for... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> letting me experience one of my <laughs> lifelong dreams. I'm sorry I'm laughing. It's ridiculous that it even got to happen. So um, uh, Will had gotten to do it too. So uh, that I, I think for both of us, it's, you know, this was a nice little bow on, uh, on, on something that was so important to us. And so now, okay, so now that you know it's Wayne Brady, usually I do the corkboard up top, but now I'm going to do a couple of corkboards real fast before we get into the episode. First of all, events at ID10T.com is how you get these in here. Kelsey writes, I'm a watercolor illustrator and expat from California. I recently moved to a rural area in France. Being in a more uh, natural setting inspired me to do a 100-day painting challenge to learn about local flora and fauna around me. Along the way, I started researching biodiversity and habitat loss and how it affects literally everything and everyone on Earth. My 100-day project is on Instagram, and I sell original watercolor sketches of local French plants and animals on Etsy, where folks can support my research painting and help me better tell the story of the importance of natural science and biodiversity for all nature, including humans. Instagram is... um, it's Now, it's pronounced Kelsey, but it's spelled... It's the at, and then Q-E-L-L-E-S-S-I, and Etsy is the same shop name. Uh, You can purchase original artwork there, and she'll be adding little by little as the project continues, and I did look at it, and the work is beautiful, so um, great job, Kelsey, and way to go, just moving out to rural France and and discovering nature and taking a chance like that. Um, I have no doubt that this will pay off and take you in directions that you never, never, never could have foreseen, so congratulations. Also... Rachel writes, uh, my husband and I are big time listeners of yours. Uh, I know that you have public announcements before episodes and was hoping you were willing to help us. My husband has been diagnosed with end stage kidney failure and is looking for donors. A live donor would greatly increase his lifespan and quality. If you could share this information, I'm sure that would reach far more people than we can hope for. So I am absolutely sharing it for you, Rachel, and I'm wishing all all the best and hope that this works out. The more people that know, uh, she says, the more likely chance we can find someone who's willing to donate. Contact info for donation questions, livingdonors at albertahealthservices.ca. And the phone number is 780-407-8698. That's 780-407-8698. Um, I'm sure I speak for myself and all of the ID Tenti listeners that are sending you all the best and hoping um, that you can find a kidney uh, for your husband and we're we're thinking about you. So uh, that is all for the corkboard events at ID10T.com again as we launch in episode number 1006 with Mr. Wayne Brady. Initiating ID10T protocol. my credit card and he goes oh I thought that was you and I go what he goes I used to be head of marketing for Sony 
and I did a show with you, a pilot with you years ago, and he said, I got, you know, like there were a lot of shifts in the business around 2009, and he said at 50, um, I got laid off, and it was like I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd been in marketing for like 30 years or whatever, and so he, uh, he called his friend Norman Lear, because he had worked for Norman Lear in the <laughs> 70s. And um, he was like, I don't know what to do. And Norman was like, well, pretty much, like, did you, are you happy with your job? Do you, is there anything else? He was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not really happy with it anymore anyway. And he goes, well, now it's time to do something new. And he just happened to have a passion for bread making. So he pursued it and opened this incredible bakery in this tiny little town called Los Alamos. Called uh, Oh, Los Alamos where the uh, nuclear testing, you know, Stuff, right? I think it's a different Los Alamos. Oh, there's okay. there's there's a Los Alamos in, in New Mexico. Yeah, and the, yeah, and this Los Alamos is uh, uh, just off the 101. Oh, okay. And so there's like a little. It's like it's kind of a vineyard area, and this tiny little town is sort of being revitalized by um, just like you know artsy creative types. So these old rundown places are now like. Like a boutique hotel, you know, like the old, old motels turn into like a boutique hotel. That's cool. And he opened this really incredible, I mean, it's like the fucking best bread ever. And it's called Well Bread. Well Bread, it's called. It's in Los Alamos. His name's Bob, and it was great. It was well, well, I'm glad it worked out for him because it sounded like coming in on the story, it sounded like this guy was in marketing and then was a waiter serving you. <laughs> no, it was his, it was, like, it was like, his oh. shop. Well, then that's it was, it great... Was, it was his, bread, it was his, it was his uh, cafe. And, uh, you know, and also just such an interesting lesson. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, like whatever direction you think your life is going and then all of a sudden something changes and it's like, well, I'm just going to do this other new thing now. So, I don't know. It was, it was very inspirational. Good for Bob. Good for Bob. But let's talk about you, Wayne Brady. How are you doing? I love these glasses. I had these when I was a kid. Now, were they, these originals? This is an original. That The one you have is a repro. But I have original, original Lando here. And you can see the shape of the glass is, is different. That's so cool. Yeah. Although, someone has pointed out that if you got the glass and hadn't seen the movie, the, the little exposition on the back gives up. A lot of it's a lot of spoiler. Oh yeah, they did that in the on on the cards too. Like as a kid, I remember having having the Star Wars cards, and depending on which card you gave, it actually told you the movie. Yeah, it told you the exact thing. I'm hoping that if you bought the card, you probably saw the movie. It's like no one watches Talking Dead if they didn't watch Walking Dead. You know what I mean? It's like they probably we can't spoil anything on the show because people are probably already in. But these right. are just random glasses. If you were just like, oh, I'm going to get some water, I sure can't wait to go see this Star Wars movie. God damn it, it's right here on the... Yeah. <laughs> Never again! <laughs> He's very excited. He's very passionate. Were you, big, uh, were you a big Star Wars fan growing up? Well, yes and no. And I think it's an interesting thing, thing because I, I'm, I'm writing a book right now um, called uh, Young, Gifted, and Whack uh-huh. uh, about being a a young black nerd from the hood. And, uh, you know, we've heard these stories in the 80s, of course, those of us that came came of age, about being, being a nerd and the things that were accessible to you. People never talk about the kids who were nerds and, and never had the things that you went, oh, 
oh, I want that Voltron standing, uh, the the two foot guy, right. guy, but I can't get that. <clears throat> oh, I want want the Star Wars thing. Oh, I want to go see Star Wars, but I can't see that. So when we were talking about the glasses and the cards, from my perspective, I I knew Star Wars the movie from the glasses from Bur- Burger <laughs> King and from the cards oh, that wow. that I got from different friends. And and from reading some of the comic books, so I so I didn't see Star Wars proper until really I think I was nineteen twenty twenty one. Oh wow! So I saw it after the fact, but I knew of it because I, I knew all of the lore and and I had stuff that I got secondhand. So I never admitted to anyone that I'd never seen it. I just listened and played along and filled in the gaps so I could. Tell tell them everything what happened without ever seeing seeing the movie. Isn't it nice that nerd culture has sort of become such that it <clears throat> has permeated every like everyone has access to all of it now, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know the traditional archetype of the nerd is like a doughy white kid who pre- it's like nah, there's all is everybody so different, so different, and and I mean I, I think. Uh, you know, not to blow smoke, but we have you, you know, in part to thank for that movement because there was a shift. I don't know exactly when, but, you know, back in the day when we were kids, nerd, nerd, like Revenge of the Nerds, nerd. Yeah, yeah. Nerd was a pejorative. Yes. It's like nerd will get your ass kicked. Nerd, yeah. you're an asshole. Now, nerd, everybody wants to be a nerd. The hot girl puts on glasses and does cosplay. I don't know, guys. I'm just a nerd. <laughs> Well, well, you're the hot girl with glasses on and a short skirt. <laughs> but now that now now the argument is like, now the pejorative is like, you're a fake nerd. No, I'm not. I have real nerd credentials. What are you talking about? I'm not a fake nerd. And then you have to prove. Then and, you and have then to prove. Said, oh yeah. Well, what about? And if you could pass pass the litany of questions thrown at you by by the guy that works at the comic book store, then you gain entrance. That's how you. That's how you know it all worked out well for the nerds when people are defending their own yep. nerddom when before. Be like, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? I'm not a nerd. I'm not into this stuff. No, this isn't even mine. No, yeah. Don't hit me. Football. Yeah. <laughs> footballing is great. I love footballing. Pigskin's awesome. <laughs> I never really... That was an interesting thing growing up. Because <clears throat> you're, you're from Georgia, right? Well, I was born in Georgia, but I'm really from Orlando, Florida. You're from Orlando. Okay, yeah. gotcha. But it was interesting growing up in the South and not being sports literate. Because so there's so much sports. I mean, there's I, everyone. You know, mo- most people like sports, but particularly in the South, it's a thing. It's and it's very tribal. And if you're not a part of it, if you're not a part of this school or this school or this team or that thing, how do you fit? You know, like where do you go? How do you like? You're just sort of you know, you're just part of the scraps that you don't know like where you fit in. So, what was your group when you were growing up? My group really. I didn't have a group. You know, I that's part of what what my book is about is is about being tribeless to a degree, which which in the end worked out well for myself and for my therapist um, <laughs> and for his kids because because they're all going to college. Yeah, you're welcome, Timmy. Um, I because of the neighborhood that I grew up in, I didn't fit in with the kids in the neighborhood in the hood. And then because I was bussed out to this other school, Dr. Phillips, which was, uh, I would say, 98% white, 
because of the gifted program, and that was and I was smaller than the other kids because this is not nerd bragging; it's just facts. So I jumped from from kindergarten to second grade. So I was already smaller than some of them, and uh, being being the smaller kid and not knowing the customs of this new world that you find yourself thrown into, and you really don't fit into your old place, I learned quickly, like, oh, I don't have a tribe, so I'm just going to be by myself. I've, I've got my tribe. So that's why I read so much, and I started reading a ton of sci-fi, a ton of fantasy, um, uh, and then plays and and watching old variety shows and cartoons. And I think that's where I got my love of pop culture and also the classics, and that fed into me being able to do improv. So it wasn't until I got into high school, to be completely honest, that I found a tribe, especially like like you're saying in a sports world. I didn't, I didn't play football. I was too small at one point. And then when I was big enough, I had no interest in it, so I ran track. And, and then I had no interest to really run track, but I did it so that I could look halfway cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So eventually I got into ROTC because my father was in the military. So I figured this is where I can hide out. So I can fit in here and, and I like the costume. O- only a theater kid will call a, a military uniform. <laughs> costume. The costume. <laughs> so I guess around 10th grade, I fit into that. And then in 11th grade, I started acting. And that's when I met the other kids who I got into the nerd culture of that time, like in uh, 88. Yeah. Um, me- meeting the other kids that, that liked um, the Douglas Adams. Yep. And, uh, and that we would listen to R.E.M., but loved Run DMC mm-hmm. and, and the Beastie Boys and, and started getting in with those guys. So I think that's, that's when I found my group and, and I found a voice. Yeah, and also just sort of hearing about, even just hearing that much about sort of bouncing around in school and jumping ahead. And it's like, of course you had to learn improv skills. There was survival. Like you had to learn how to survive in a lot of different environments. Absolutely. So you, you, like that, those are the roots like you know, for for every like for every improv you know hoedown, there's years of like just trying to survive in a social structure. Man, learning to to freestyle and to come up with rhymes that not just weren't rhyming, but that made sense and that could cut someone down. That was self <laughs> self defense. Learning that in the back of the bus. As everyone's attention is focused on you and some guy is calling you asshole and saying, well, your mama and you so black, you this, you that, you, you had to learn to defend yourself verbally because I had to defend myself physically, but ver- verbally became the thing. How fast can, can my mouth be to, to, to get me out of this social situation so I don't look like such a nerd? I mean, it's, it's really interesting to... to like thinking so you saying like well, I didn't really know what my group was and you're such a unique entity that I can imagine sometimes it can be hard to sort of for people to understand like what your identity is because you do so many different things right and you appeal to so many different people that I can see the plus side is like well you know this guy is so versatile he does all this stuff and then do you ever feel like, well, I'm in between all of these different types of things, so I don't really know what, like, how to, you know, like in this business, you sometimes you have to sell yourself one dimensionally to a company. It's like, yeah. what am I? I do, I'm all, I'm a million things. And I refuse to. And I mean, you know, the truth is, 
maybe if, uh, you know, because I've been lucky enough since, I guess this is 2018, so since 20, uh, since, since 1998, I've been lucky enough to be on TV. There, there, there has not been a year since 98 that I have not been on TV. That's almost unheard of. So I've been lucky that way. I'm, I'm sure that at some point in the first decade of being on TV, if I would have gone, okay, no, I'm this guy. Right. And rocked that direction as hard as I can. Who knows? Maybe I would have been doing more film. If I would have said, I'm going to double down and I'm going to release records and just be, be a singer, maybe I would have just done that. Or Broadway or whatever, all, all of the things I've done. But at the end of the day, I don't want to do, do that. I will fight tooth and nail to my grave, never wanting to be just anything. No, just dot, dot, dot. And right. I think that's a holdover from being a kid and fighting so hard for my identity. When, when, when people would tell me what I am, I would say, no, I know what I am. And it's not that. And just disagreeing because... Because I wanted to hold on to that, and I wanted to tell my own story. Because so many people thought that they knew, like my folks are from the Virgin Islands, so we talked with with an accent. And then I was poor, so this person called me poor. I said, "No, I'm not." This this person would say something. No, no, I'm not. So I'm very ornery still, <laughs> still like to this day. So 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 needless to say, sometimes I have a rough time in a room when I am supposed to be pitching a project and it's just me and they say oh so you're gonna just it's like Mar- marty mcfly when you call him chicken right i go well <laughs> i am not just a host <laughs> thank you and then i proceed to get pissed off and regale them with my entire imdp page of of uh, nine pages and that's no way to win friends well but 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 it's all but when people try to tell you what you are that's all, all 100% of the time about them. And mm. they're, they're sort of limited, you know, like people just need to file things in their head. They need to, they need to go, I need to, I need to sort this quickly and not give it any. Because so, it's easy. Because it's easy that way. And however people see you is usually about <clears throat> them. I mean, unless you're punching them in the face, that's different. Right. But, you know, when someone comes up and they go, here's what you are. A lot of times that's about them. And, but, and to understand that, I think, is really important because, you know, if you're susceptible or, you know, you might start going, oh, OK, well, I guess that someone just said. So I, it's like, but what authority are they? You know, like right. you, you should be comfortable with who who's that person. And so you need to be comfortable in your skin. And I'm not going to lie. It's a lesson that I'm still learning now at 46. I'm still I'm still maturing. I'm still undergoing this uh this this chrysalis stage, I feel, where where who knows, maybe one day, if I'm lucky enough to be 80, right right before my eyes close, I'll go, I've got it. <laughs> I know who I be. That's the cosmic joke. Right? That's the cosmic joke. I figured it out. Ah, <laughs> uh, 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 fuck, he was about to say something. What was it? Nah, I don't know. We'll never know now. And the world keeps going. The world And the world keeps going. That's important to remember, too, that... that, that that's just part of it. That you're just there's just some things we're never gonna know, mm-hmm. and you know maybe we'll get this flash of enlightenment, like that white light you see right before you die is just all of the truth and information hitting you at once. But even if that's the case, like well, it doesn't really matter because uh, you good know. news, bad news. Good news, <laughs> here is the truth. Bad news, you don't need it. I don't know if we ever talked about this. I think I remember auditioning for Let's Make a Deal when when right before. 
Yeah, you you auditioned for one of the host uh, for the host slot, right? I think I did. Yeah, Mike Richards auditioned you. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. And I was like, oh, we're bringing this. We're gonna bring back. Let's make a deal. You are really. I loved that show, and uh, I feel like I remember that that whole process. And I'm just, first of all, I'm glad you got it, and I'm glad that it worked out so well, because you never know, like... You never know. Especially with, like, oh, we're going to remake this thing, and you are, mm. oh, my, good luck with that, you know? And it and it really worked out. Man, I, it's it's amazing, you know, the that, that uh, um, I don't know know everyone listening, your, your religious belief, but, but I have friends of mine that say, you know, the big cosmic joke, joke is, you tell God what you want. And listen to him laugh at you because we can set goals and it works. Hey, I'm setting my intention. I've got a vision board. And there are just times when you're not going to, when you're like, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. And this is awesome. And it could be good. It could be bad. With, with Let's Make a Deal, I'd been approached a few times. And each time I gave a respectful, no, thank you, mm-hmm. because I remember at that time, i just gotten finished uh, doing a game show on Fox, Don't Forget the Lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I only did that because I had a record coming out at the time, and it was a music show, and I could sing during the show. I was like, okay, this makes sense. I'm going to use this as a tool for this thing. Yeah. But I was one of, one of those people that went, game show host? No. Because in my mind, I've, I had a... a cardboard version of what a game show host was just like i have a cardboard version of what a weatherman is Mm -hmm. or an anchor or or the guy that does the human interest pieces yep that there are certain uh templates hi and welcome to blah 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 (laughs) tell him what he won johnny he's got an all expense paid trip like that that's cool for you yeah but my ego like i'm a classically trained actor I do this, this, I'm not doing that bullshit. Yeah. No, no, absolutely not. They came back a couple times. And then I met Mike, Mike Richards, who has become a dear, dear friend of mine, the EP of that and of, um, and of uh, The Price is Right. And in talking to Mike, who, who convinced me to go to this lunch with Monty Hall to just listen, and I already knew I wasn't going to do it. I was like, I, I will go. It's pretty cool to meet Monty Hall. I used to watch the show as a kid. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And it's always nice to be wanted. Folks never lose track of the fact, even if you're in show business, I, I don't care if you're on night shift at Wendy's. It's nice when people think of your name and go, you know what? Why do we call such and such? You may never do the thing, but don't take it for granted. So it was an honor that my name was on this list that a great company like Fremantle was like, oh, Wayne's our guy and Monty Hall. So it's like, you know what? I'm going to take the meeting. I'll shake his hand. I'll get a picture. I'll send it to my mom. It'll be great. I sit down and I meet Monty, one of the warmest people that I've ever met in this town. And uh, we had lunch and he started talking to me about let's make a deal. And by the time we finished that lunch, I was like, shit. <laughs> Why did I take this lunch? Now I want to do the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do let's make a deal. I just don't want to have a long microphone. <laughs> I just don't want to have a long microphone. And and for a couple and for half a season they try to make me use one. So I just don't want a long microphone. I just don't want to be that guy. And he said, I don't, I don't want you to to do my show or to do do an old game game show. We want you to do it because of what you do. I said, so I can 
do com comedy and I can do the do do the musical comedy and I, yes, do all the things that make you you. And I to this day I thank Fremantle and CBS and Mike and Monty for having the foresight because to my knowledge, unless it's a specialty game show that is a comedic game show, mm-hmm. I'm in a mainstream game show that does comedy and it's basically a variety show with a game show element now yeah. and it's taken time to make it be that thing but it's pretty damn cool and a few Emmys later for it it's turned in into something so no you would have never told me that 10 years later I would be hosting Let's Make a Deal um, in addition to the other things I do because I just never thought that that would be the things I didn't know it fit into my version of what I wanted to do yeah and also it what you start to realize is like, well, there's no <clears throat> this idea that someone has to be one thing or another. It just doesn't even work anymore. That's just <clears throat> antiquated, like old media thinking. And you can host a game show. You can have a musical album. You can do musical theater. You can do improv. You can write. Like you know, I almost feel like in a weird way, it's kind of expected now that you do. 50 things. You yes, know, because... it's good to be a multi-hyphenate, as you know. <laughs> well, but it, it, it's, it, it, can, it can just sometimes feel a little like, oh, am I, am I enough of a thing or am I not enough of a thing or am, is it this? You know, and so there, there is I, – I do, I do find with trying to do a lot of different things sometimes that there is a little bit of an identity crisis. But I think that's the identity. The identity is sort that's of being it. in the middle of this identity crisis and that's kind of what makes it. And – and, I mean, yeah, it's stressful sometimes, but it's cool. That is so cool. Like, I love having things in the pipeline as I'm working. Like, right now, of all things that I, once again, I never saw myself doing, now I'm on a soap opera for a couple of months. I'm on The Bold and the Beautiful on CBS because I've got such a good relationship with CBS Daytime now. Because I was like, why not? Um, James Franco did, did a soap opera. And he's a great actor, so I'm going to do a soap opera. I find out that the soap opera folks are great, and some of them are kick-ass actors. And the discipline to learn a whole script in a day and shoot it, I think it's awesome. Then I'm doing Deal. Then I've got Whose Line Is It Anyway? And we're working on a new record, and I'm writing this book that we hope to turn turn into a TV show. And my company has three shows in development with with two different networks. And, And I'm a dad. I love being in the swirling maelstrom because the alternative <laughs> is is sitting at Starbucks with your laptop calling yourself a writer. Right. That's the alternative. So I like this. I really like it. Is it enough? Like do you feel satisfied by it or do you do you ever have to check yourself <clears throat> before you wreck yourself? Do you ever have Chickety to check, check yourself? yourself. <laughs> do you ever have to check yourself so that you're not just doing stuff to do stuff that you feel like, okay, wait a minute, I am, I am satisfied, I do appreciate this stuff, these are all just things that I'm doing that are fun, and not because like I need it to feel like I'm somebody. I'm never satisfied, and, <laughs> and that is a problem. I, I think I need to live in gratitude more, but you always want more. Like, I've got these things going on, I want this movie that we're working on to go, because I want to do more film. I want this uh, this um, sitcom pilot that we're that we're doing with CBS. I want that to go because I want to do a sitcom. I want to produce. I, I just optioned two sci-fi novels. I want to produce those novels and see them actually work. I want to see a, a superhero thing go because unless I've got those things going, I feel 
I, I think I feel like I'm not doing enough. And eh, may, maybe there's something uh, weird in that and not grateful, but that's the reality. Um, I really, really love it. And I'm reading four, four books at any given time that I wish that I were doing. You know what I mean? That, but I think it's a drive. And, and I'd rather have that drive and bump my head into a couple walls than sit, sit back. It'd be very easy right now with the living that I make if I were just a guy that wanted to host a show yeah. and be that thing. Yeah. It'd be easy. And then, and then you do that and you Bob bar- Barker yourself. Yeah. And nothing against Bob because that's what Bob did. Bob, Bob was the hosting beast. Yeah. Alex Trebek, the, the game show hosting beast. That's their thing and that's, that's a legacy. But I think I'm working towards a legacy. Yeah, I mean, just as long as just as long as you, you know, just as one person who does a lot, <laughs> who probably works too much sometimes, just just as long as you are doing it because you love it and that you know that you personally are enough, you know, that's what I would. That's that absolutely. That's my. I'm a year older than you advice. <laughs> no, but that's what I'm. No, but I've got to remind mind myself because I like like that knowledge and and to your folks, the folks listening, take that piece of advice. Don't chase something because it makes you feel. Chase something because you can't live without it and it's your passion. Because there is a distinct difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've done it the other way as well. So I'm glad that you said that. Yes, I've done it the other way where I felt like if I get this, then I will. Then. But people will, but I then, oh. So, no, that's the thinking that I'm trying to... It's dangerous because yeah. you can't control all that stuff. You can't control you can't it. Control Just like you can't stuff. control an audition. No. Nope. You walk in, you think you nailed it. There's no reason why I can't be the next such and such. Well, yeah, the reason is because the director, uh, you remind him of his best friend from high school that they had a falling out. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't talked to him in 30 years. You and seeing your that. face... Is horrible. So from the <laughs> time you enter the room, he's like Joshua, and, and you're screwed. Did that happen to you? No, but oh, that, I can sounded, that sounded so real. <laughs> Joshua, <laughs> no, I'm Wayne. I'm Wayne. I have to say though, the uh, uh, I, I went through the Who's Line audition process once. I mean, this would have been like 15 years ago. Arduous, and I got through a day. I got through the day. And it's intense, as you know, because you – it's a big group of people. And you're in just like a, you know, just like a big conference room or a big meeting space. And throughout the day, they just make cuts, 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 cuts. So you yep. people – you play a bunch of games and they make a wave of cuts. And I made it and I made it and I made it. I made it all the way to the end of the day. And I was like, holy shit. I'm going to get to be on this show that I watched – when Comedy Central was still like the comedy channel. Me too, yes. And I watched every day, you know, like Clive Anderson and Ryan and Colin and oh. Mike McShay and Josie and Greg and all Greg those. And, um, Tony Slattery. Tony Slat. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, Jonathan Price, like all these really great performers. And um, we get to the end of the day. I'm exhausted. I don't have any voice left. I'm more mentally tired than I've ever been in my entire life. And uh, I, I call, I get home and I call my agent and I go, I think I'm going to, you know, like I, I made it all the way. And she goes, great. They're just going to probably need you to do that a handful more times. I was like, what? And then I go, you know what? I'm out. I did it once. I don't know if I have the fortitude 
to do that ever again. Like it was eight hours of improv games, and I I just don't think. But I But you must it. have slept so well. Yeah, I might have slept for like a week, but <laughs> holy shit! So I just, as much as I had respect for the show before, it gave me such a new perspective on what that process is and what it takes to make it on that show and thrive on that show. So um, hats off. Thank you, sir. What was your audition process? How many times did you have to go? Well, in reality, I only auditioned for the show twice. And my auditions were spaced years apart. The first time I auditioned in Orlando with the uh, sketch improv group that I was with, we um, had a comedy theater, which is still still there. A shout out to SAC Theater, um, uh, probably one of the best uh, improv com- companies in the South. Um, and we auditioned. I realized the folly of us auditioning when we did improv. Despite you, you may be seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year old phenom. Just witty, so smart. Look at you. You're dashing. You jump up on stage. Yes, and the fuck out of it. You can just yes, and to everybody. But the thing that I've learned that I now try to pass on whenever I teach a workshop, every blue moon or I direct something, is I know the secret. The secret really is your improvisation is only as good as what you know. It sounds so sim- simple and basic, but as an actor doing a scripted thing, you can fudge. You don't have to be in prison to play a dude in prison. <laughs> but in improv, to yes and a certain something, if you don't know or have a bag of references to pull from, you can't make the space up. You don't have the ammunition. Life gives you the ammo. Each year, each thing you do, each movie you see, each book you read, each fight you have with your girlfriend or boyfriend, each person you watch do something stupid in public, each time you do something stupid, every news article, it all gets added. The bigger your, your chest of stuff, the better you are. I think I was okay by the time I got Who's Line. When I auditioned for it the first time, I think I was 19, 20. Horrible. I was horrible. I sucked so badly at that <laughs> first audition, which actually, for those of you taking improv, is fine. You're actually supposed to suck when you're learning. It's a thing. You're, you're supposed to suck. Um, I was horrible. We as a group were horrible, and we thought that we, we were the shit, and we were horrible. So fast forward to years later, seven of us now live in Los Angeles, and we formed a group called the Houseful of Honkies. Mm-hmm. We, I remember we, the, I know this group. Yeah. Like the Honkies actually got like a lot of shine. Um, it was like the, like the Groundlings and Second City and the Honkies came up. Um, uh, so they came back to see us again. I was so battle scarred from that first audition. I went, oh, hell no. Oh, I'm not going to audition for that. You guys can go and look stupid. I'm not going to audition. At the time, I was working as Dracula and Wolfman in the Beetlejuice rock and roll show up at Universal Studios. Fantastic. Singing five times a day, singing to rock songs and breakdancing as the werewolf and singing hot-blooded as Dracula <laughs> in this Broadway-esque 
show monsters singing Broadway and rock songs. But I sang the shit out of that. I was awesome. And I was a percussionist at the park in this thing called Boom Operators. And I sang doo-wop. And I was Cab Calloway in the Blues Brothers show. I was going to keep a gig. I was like, I will not be waiting tables. Nothing against waiting tables. But I wanted to act. So I was doing that. I said, I'm not going to go to this audition because I'm working my shift. At that point, I was making as much during the day as someone doing an equity show on the, the road in Los Angeles. That's not heard of. So I went, mm, I'm not missing on that money. Come on, Wayne. So as part of the group, I gave away a couple of my shows and I said, I'll be back by my lunchtime because I'm going to get cut. So let's all show up. I have to preface this that there were seven of us in the house full of honkies. I self Acknowledging myself, I believe I was the least funniest person in the honkies. My job, yeah, I was funny. I did my thing, but I would do the music piece. I had characters, but there, there were guys in the improv group. And if you're in an improv group, you know the people I'm talking about that were the stars. They, they, they did their thing. And I was happy to let that happen because I... I had my other interests. I, I wanted to act on TV, so the stage thing was cool. So I just showed up figuring that me, as the seventh in line, I was going to get cut. I showed up. We all do the first round. Oh, great. I'm still here. We do the second round, like, like you're saying. We do some more of the games. And those games, I, I, I don't know about you, but those games scared the shit out of me because I would watch them do World's Worst mm-hmm. on TV and Mike McShane and Greg Proops. So fast. It's like, how the hell? World's worst uh, example of a bus driver. It's like, um, I, don't, I don't know. Your stop is, you know, oh, I don't know. But, but it's amazing what adrenaline and some fear will unlock in you. Because somewhere between the third and fourth round, I actually wanted the gig. And everything that they threw at me, I, I have to admit, I was on point. And it just kept happening. I called in and canceled the rest of my shift at work. I gave away my shows. The same thing that happened to you happened to me. It was, it was an eight-hour day at, at the end of it. But the difference was they kept calling me back in by myself to just do musical stuff. That They had a whole two rounds where it was just me. And then they'd bring in somebody else to do it with me. And they wouldn't do so great. They'd be, okay, thank you, thank you. And I would just, um, can you do Michael Jackson having an epileptic seizure? Yes. <laughs> That's where I really embraced yes and. It's like, hell yes. Yes and. What, what do you want? Yes, I'm a dinosaur. Captain EO, I love that. I just coincidentally am wearing a Captain EO shirt. I love that. You drop a Michael Jackson. Anything that they said, I did. I was in it. And at the end of the day, the smoke cleared. There were only two people standing. It was myself and my dear friend, Claire Sarah, who is now a big-time Hollywood writer. Um, she just uh, wrote that movie, uh, and I'm going to butcher the name of it. Is it Smallfoot? The, the, the cartoon. Smallfoot. So um, it was just the two of us. And then, and then you think you've got the job. They said, all right. Well, we'll see you Friday. That's wonderful. The agent went, oh, my God, this is... I, I'm actually going to be on whose line? I'm actually going to... We'll see you Friday for the workshop. Uh, for the what? You went to a workshop. Now, I didn't realize that that workshop was where you really get the gig. Because the other, that's the first time I met Ryan. I met Colin. Um, and I think Greg Proops was the other one. Um, 
they, of course, had already been doing the show, so they were la 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 smoking cigarettes. Me, I knew that I had to tap dance and backflip my way into a gig. So I treated it like I was doing a show. I was Bugs Bunny um, and, and Daffy Duck, you know, in that one cartoon where, where, where he's sliding on his knees and he's got his glove. <laughs> and he gets no applause. And he gets and no Bugs applause. walks out and he goes, and hey, what's up, Doc? And everyone's like, yeah, everyone freaks out. That's a, I was Daffy. I was working my ass off. And I ended up getting it right after that. And that was my very first. And then I got my first episode. And my first episode, I was made a regular immediately after my first episode. So that's a long-winded way of describing what happened. And it's one of the most amazing weeks of my adult life, of my life ever, because I never saw it coming. And when it came, I was actually ready. And I didn't know that I had gotten ready for doing improv. I didn't know that I was ready because I'm the last person that I would have ever thought would make a name for himself doing improv. Never thought. That's two jobs that you were like, I know I'm not going to audition for this. I'm not going to. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to. And then, wait a minute. See, I'm stubborn. Like, <laughs> like I said, I'm really stubborn. But it also means you don't always, not only you, but you in the general sense, don't always know what's best, like what your thing is. You don't always know what your thing is. And there's nothing like thinking what your thing is. And we see it on American Idol all the time. I'm Jimmy, age 23. I'm from Long Beach. My thing is, I'm going to be the next Snoop. All right, then. Let's, let's hear you, Jimmy. Bow easy. Y'all like peppermint. Rocking it. Understand? I'm the man. Who did? Thank you. What? That's my baby. He can rap and sing. It's okay, baby. Mama, they didn't like me. Well, no, Jimmy, because your ass can't rap or sing. So know your thing. You're right. Know your thing. That's that's just just for 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 life. Know your thing, or at least just be open to discovering, or be open to the experiences that you know. Because you, it's so easy to prejudge the idea. It's like, oh, that doesn't sound like anything I could or would be interested in doing. It's like, well, but what if you just tried it? And if it doesn't work, then you then you have proof that it's not the thing for you. But what if it, it does work? Or what if it unlocks something that you hadn't expected before? Because we're so obsessed with building these fake security bubbles mm. where our feelings never get hurt and where we can, you know, like the game is always set on easy difficulty and we never... Infinite lives. Infinite lives, God mode, and we never have to... Yeah, like be afraid of God mode. Be afraid of God mode because there's no growth in God mode. It's just a, uh, you know, you, it's like you're, you're, not, you're not getting any muscle. Not at all. Not at all. And that is a good rule to live by. Um, I think, you know, it, it's an improv thing, but yes and is real. Yes and is real. Shonda Rhimes, I think, wrote that book a few, a few years ago, the year of uh, yes. But my thing is, yes and, I think, is even a little more powerful. Because you can say yes to a lot of things, but can you yes and it? Can you yes I'll audition for that thing, and I will take that opportunity and use it to go someplace where I'm not comfortable. Right. That's really powerful. Well, that and Alan Aldo was on the podcast earlier this year, and he would, had talked about how he would go in and train groups, in, like scientists, people who were not comedy people or performers, in it, and to play improv games. Because yes, you do the same thing. Yes, yeah. because it forces them or it just naturally opens them up and makes them comfortable in situations where they're not. And it also gets them to trust their instincts and not, mm-hmm. not get in their own way and get all the judgment out. But improv training is 
the best. I mean, like, stand-up's one of those things, like, you're either going to do stand-up or you don't do stand-up. But improv, you can, tr- you know, like, stand-up training is just going and doing it. But improv training, it, I think, prepares you for almost anything that life could, you know, like, any discipline. It's so interdisciplinary. Because it's fluidity of thought and it's fluidity of, of, um, of, of, uh, of, of self. And being able to not be so locked in. So when something pops up on, um, I always describe Im- improv when I'm doing it, I've got a computer screen up in my head. And whenever I have to make a choice or whenever I hear hear a word, like if I'm rhyming or if I'm doing a song, I'm seeing all of the different options that I can go to. And, and I have to make a decision immediately, but I've got options. I've got all these things that I could. No, no, that doesn't work. Am I going to use that? Ooh, I'll try that. Let's see. If I did not, if I didn't think like that, if I chose to think in a in a purely linear fashion, there's no way that I could stand on stage and pretend to be an eagle on his way home from work. <laughs> you know, I mean, like like the most absurd situations, and try to bring some sort of reality to it because. I couldn't process it. I couldn't process being that open to those things. Yeah. And I think that training works. We've, when I was with theater sports out here in LA or uh, when I was with SAC and, and even privately, you can teach a businessman. You can teach people that are in charge of Fortune 500 companies to trust their employees by doing the trust exercises. It sounds so, so cliche and actory. But you can teach that way of thinking. And it's so cool to watch someone who would never, ever get on stage by the end of the day actually be somewhat decent at making choices. It's really cool cool to watch. Yeah, because it's so easy to uh, – I, I feel like li- life can give you so many reasons for why your choices are bad. <laughs> life can show you so many – you know, if you're looking at that perspective. And so you can get very afraid – not only because of past experiences, but also just like, I don't want any new shitty experiences, you know. I, I like the old good ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, just like being too comfortable in a bad relationship or too comfortable in a bad job or too comfortable. And it's like, you know, sometimes people will choose familiarity over the risk of uh, being uncomfortable or being hurt. But the reward, you know, even if just the reward is like I broke out of a mold that I was in, it's worth it. Amen. I think. Amen. You know? And, and But the truth is, so many other things come along that because you can't, you just don't know what things a path is going to reveal to you until you start down the path. You just can't possibly know. But at least if you're open to it, you know, you know, like, well, a lot of, because you, I'm sure in, in the last 10 years, all the opportunities you've had, all the things you've gotten to do as a result of these decisions that you made you never could have foreseen all of that but they wouldn't have happened if you hadn't done this never and i think the thing uh and this is talking to some of your your older listeners um at 30 um (laughs) that uh that the fear is and i think the fear that you have to let go of is the fear of running out of options i think that's that's what helps people stay in whatever situation they're in. I was talking to a friend the other day, and and I think it's no matter what job you're in, and talking about you know the guy that that you were talking about earlier who um, who was 50 and and left left that job. 
on paper, you're 50. You've been doing this for 30 years. You're going to start over now? Yeah. A whole new thing? You're going to start over a whole new thing. Who's going to hire you? So that's a fear, the fear of options. Well, I'm 50 at this point. I don't have any options. I don't, it, I, I'm sure it's easy. And not everyone is going to have a success story like that. But I'm sure at that age, e- even at this age, if I were to, were to start over or I wasn't doing X, Y, and Z, yeah, you'd go, oh, shit, well, I can't be the 25-year-old guy run, run, running around on camera with my shirt off and abs all the time, and I can't <laughs> do this. I can't jump out of a, a freaking plane and join the army. Ooh, um, I need to do something. You, that's fear-based thinking because you're afraid that your options are running out instead of just taking a breath and being open to the options that are in front of you. And we don't see those all the time because we're scared. And I speak from experience. I will be the first person to panic if I feel that things aren't going right because I have a deep-seated fear of failure, which, which, which drives me. It's like, no, I don't want this to go wrong. But that deep-seated fear of failure, while it spurs me to do good things, I think, also can stop me sometimes. So I have to take a breath. I have to look and go, these are your options. Even if it's only one other option, shit, it's an option. Yeah, but you can never fail. You can't fail. Because anything you do is going to have something valuable in it. Even if it doesn't, in a traditional sense, like, well, this thing wasn't number one at the box office or it wasn't this. I mean, if that's how you define success or failure, then, yeah, that's outside your control. Right. But if you can if you can figure out how to define success and failure as an internal process and not an external process you can never fail because you will always you can always learn from something you can also it can spur you in a different direction you can appreciate it just for the experience that you had yep. you have that much more wisdom you have even if it's just that like there are so many things to extrapolate and like with this guy you know what's so so fascinating was that for him it sort of felt like he was starting over but he said and he, I, I thought this was so interesting. He was like, yeah, and you know, because I had all this marketing experience, I put together a business plan. I was like, that was it. You, like, that enti- like all that time gave you the experience to put together this plan to manifest your passion. And if you hadn't had that 30 years experience, maybe you wouldn't have known how to create this business. Right. But you still, it wasn't just like that story was over. You were still able to call upon that tool set to manifest this bigger thing that is so much better because you had that 30 years experience. So it all like it all factors in if you're, you know, if you're looking in the right place. If you're open to that and it's really hard. You know, it's one thing for us to be, be able to sit down and and say say that and I know that there are some people that are in the hustle and sometimes it's a little harder to see that thing because you're like, "Oh, sh- oh shit, I have to make rent. Yeah. But from what I've seen, some of the people who have kept their heads during the days of, oh, I've got to make rent are the people that eventually get to a place where they have, have more than they thought they, they would because they did exercise that kind of thinking. Yeah. And, and it's just like with improv or going on stage, you know, it's the buildup of just like anything, like, oh, my God, I don't know. What if I don't have something to say? What if this fucking sucks? What if this? What if this? What if this? And then you get out there, and it's like, well, fi- you fucking figure it out now. You know, like, you're in it yes. now. You've made the decision to to jump into it, so you are going to figure it out somehow. And, you know, obviously sometimes it's not going to result in huge laughs, or it might not work out exactly the way that you had hoped. But the fact is you did it, and 
it's so empowering to know that you're so much more capable than you than most people give themselves credit for. It's like once you're in the fire, you'll figure out how to get out of it. That's exactly it. And if you do it more and more, here is a thing that I think I've found. If you just jump out and do it, you give yourself a certain confidence after a while that your established baseline is always going to be like like walking on stage and doing improv. I'm pretty confident in saying that my baseline, to me, if I have a eh, show, it's still going to be a funny show. Right. No one's going to leave going, oh, I thought he was funnier on TV. <laughs> you know, like I hope, knock on wood. Because my baseline, I've done it enough. I'm enough of an outlier. I've done it so long that I have a certain confidence about it. I'm still scared shitless right before I step up, but I'm okay with that, and I use that. So my baseline, after doing it for so long, is going to be here. Some some nights, the greatest show I've ever had, and 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 then other nights, uh, you know, there was a drunk couple in back that kept saying, "Joke a bitch, joke a bitch." So I had to deal deal with them, and I didn't like it, and it took me out of the show. But the audience still is going to like it. Yeah. So I think you just have to, you just like you said, you have to. Keep doing it. You just have to keep going and challenging yourself until the challenge becomes um, not getting out and doing it. The challenge then is, oh, okay, I just got out and doing it. Now I'm open. Right. The challenge is I just got out and did it. Now I'm open. And now I'm going to throw another challenge at myself. Make it interesting like that. And, and you can definitely apply that to life. Yeah, because getting into that flow state where now where you go out on stage and you're in the middle of a, of a rhyme – and you see the screen come up and all the options and everything slows down and you have the ability yeah. to, you know, where it feels probably incredibly slow to you, but it's happening so fast to the audience. Yes. But, you're, but your skill level and comfort, like once you can get all that anxiety and all that n- neurosis and shit out of the way, you really can start, you know picking and choosing and forming and uh and and that's that's the that's the magic like that's those are the moments but you can't get there until you just get out like you said and you just get out okay you got on you did it okay now you do it again and for me I don't know what would have happened if I had done another like I don't know I think I wasn't confident enough that I would survive another day of full improv audition and I I didn't think that I just thought I don't know. I feel like I got lucky this time. I feel like I'm not going to be able to survive this. But who knows? Like, maybe I would have surprised myself. Who knows? And you would have been been the who's line guy <laughs> instead of the nerdist guy. But I think everything worked out just fine. Oh, my God. When I met, it, did work out, it did work out just fine. But I'm telling you, like, the first time that I ever met Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery was, like, they were two of the – and this was well into my career – they were like the two biggest celebrities. It's like the people that influence you. Yeah. I mean, I could have met Jack Nicholson and be like, oh, that's so cool. But meeting Ryan Stiles to me was like that was heart stopping, you oh, know, like man. like that kind of thing. And, and you are that for people, you know, like you you get to be that for people. So I do. I hope, you know, it's because sometimes we run around in circles a million miles an hour and we sort of forget it's like, oh, I just got to do all these things and perform, and I, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. But 
you know, part of this legacy that you're creating has already been created. You know, it's like there are people out there that want to do comedy because of you. Or there are people, you know, there are, young, there are other young kids who live in the hood who are like, oh, I don't know. Comedy isn't a part of my life. But that guy, he did it. So why can't I do it? You know what I mean? Like. I can be a nerd. I can be this. I can be so. It's I love that. I've met some some of those kids, and it's brought me to tears. That's why it's so important for you, I think, to do all the different things that you do because there's so many different ways that people can be inspired by it, and then go off and do their their thing. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's we're just part of this carbon cycle of creativity. You know, I love that, man. I'm I'm gonna check back in with you because I don't know your schedule or if you'd even be interested. But we go back to work. We, we have two weeks in February and who's lying. I think you should come and play. <laughs> I really oh, no. think you should come oh, and be our God. guest. Oh, I just, I just felt my testicles like absorb up into my stomach. No, but you would be our guest. Oh, so, so I, okay, good. Yeah, so, so you would be. I'd have the training like, wheels on. You would be pr- protected but still, <laughs> still have fun and, and come and do scenes and a song and stuff. It's, you know, it's so much fun. I remember I was in college at the time. I was. I went to UCLA, and there. How long have you lived in LA? Uh, since I think ninety six or seven. Oh, since ninety six or ninety seven, there used to be an improv in um, uh, in Santa Monica. That's that's the first place that the Honkies worked out of with with Second City as well. Okay, so in like ninety two or something, I was I was in um, a group at UCLA, like a comedy club, like a bunch of writers and. Uh, like a bunch of people, we'd help each other write material, and then we perform in the dorms and stuff. And for whatever reason, I ended up becoming. I met Rick Overton and became friends with Rick. Wow! And I knew Rick from because I was an obsessive stand-up comedy nerd, and he was like, "Oh, you should come down to the, uh, <laughs> or you should come to, uh, you know, we do these improv shows at the Santa Monica Improv. You should come." Awesome. And I went down one night. And I was there with the girl I was dating at the time, and he ca- and I got called up on stage, and I only did one. We were playing freeze, and I only I had one joke in, and I almost chipped a tooth doing it because I had my mouth around a stool, uh, <laughs> and it got a laugh, and then that was it. I was like, I'm done. Like I just didn't want to get greedy because I was again I was so terrified that I was going to fuck it up the next time, and that's I just so for you to saying that to me. I just go back to that. I'm like, I don't know if I need to get greedy about this now, even though I just said that you need to get on stage. See, and, and now this is the this You've is the literally thing just could... called me out on my own advice. Like, here I am trying to be all, like, suave about, like, you, what you got to do? And then you're like, do this. Oh, I don't know, Wayne. I mean, I'm not so sure. No, I couldn't possibly. I couldn't <laughs> oh, possibly. I mean for other people. I don't mean for me. Well, just know that the invite is open. I, now I have to do it because you've – I have to do it because if I don't, then I'm not following my own advice. Well, I think it would be absolutely amazing and, and so I will make the call as one of the EPs. Oh, I think Jesus, I can get you on the show. Amazing. Oh, that would be I mean, awesome. This, and also would just, you know, I mean what you might call a lifelong bucket list dream. Of being on that, you know, being on the stage. Well, did, then we got to call and get, and get your schedule and make sure that you can do it. Did you ever, are they, are they still doing it in England? Do they still do it in England or have they not no, done it for a while? No, they haven't done it since we, the, when, when, when they brought it here in 99, in 98, that's actually when I did the British one for the first time. I did, did a few Brit- British ones and that was the end of that series. So you did the British version? Yes, but I, I mean did it that's, here. Oh, you did it here. I did it here, so so it was a cheat. But years later, I got a chance to uh, to to work with Josie, oh. and and um, and I've worked with Mike McShane and 
I worked with Clive. Um, I didn't get a chance to work work with Tony. I wish I would have. Um, their sense of humor, you know, especially at that time, it's, it was radically different. It's a radically different show. Uh, doing doing whose line there, and then when we took it over, and I think I was partially responsible for that because I think when Dan Patterson, the uh, the creator, saw the kinds of references and things that, especially me. I guess being one of the younger ones at the time, we come from a very physical background, a lot of music, character voices, big char- characters, being able to to turn on a dime, not like the Who's Line thing then of of everything was very clever. It was very clever and fast. I talk like this. I'm Tony Satterby. Well, that's interesting. Well, I don't know. Would you? It's me, Clive Anderson. Say goodnight. Good night. It's goodnight. And then credits. It's yeah. like, wow, that's, that show was fast. This is like this. This became a diff- different thing. So I guess I'm I'm kind of responsible for the dumbing down of who's lying. No, but you know what? no, I gotta. <laughs> I'm a superhero. Rocket ship, space noises, Wayne Brady, samurai, lasers, lasers. You know what they don't talk enough about on Who's Line? Pie and NASCAR. We're gonna fuck this shit up. Woo! Comedy, comedy. <laughs> I can't understand what they're saying on that other one, but this one, this shit's I, funny. I get it. I fucking get it. But it's, but you know, it, it you, you, anything that translate the, the common mistake that I think gets made when a British show gets made on American television is that they try to copy. It's like you know anything that's that has worked that started as a British show, you know, The Office or Whose Line or fucking uh, All in the Family. It's like yeah. they have to make it. You you have to. Take the seed of the idea, but the cultural conversa- the cultural vernacular is different. It's so different. We speak, we say a lot of the same words, but our our sub language is different. Our cultural language is different. So you can't like the types of jokes that work over there work because that is a part of British culture. And you might, if you're an Anglophile, you might appreciate some of that, but you can't really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we can laugh at Monty Python over here, but do we really understand it? I don't know, you yeah. know. And so it, like on, on the level of, you know, having been an, an, um, a, a, a part of the, you know, like an indigenous British person. So it, I think it's important that you guys did that. And I think that's why it worked because you weren't copying. We couldn't exactly have done. They did. And I think we took it from a different place. Whose line to those of us that watched whose line here on comedy central, I think it was niche. It was very, very niche. It was nerds and the theater kids and people that appreciated the games and liked, liked the, the Britishness of it. When Whose Line came here, there's a reason why people in Kansas, St. Louis, Florida, Compton, wherever, know Whose Line. Because it became so broad because we spoke the, the, the language and the show had a certain speed. Yeah. So I think it worked out well. It became what, what it needed to be for, for, for here. It's kind of funny to hear you say, like, oh, the old The Who's Line was niche, but when you think about what television viewing numbers were in, like, 1992, 1993, niche on Comedy Central was probably still a few million people. It's like the number of, like, the niche audience from 1992 would keep a network show on the air now forever. Isn't that something? It's just, you know... We gotta find. We gotta crawl to the four corners of the internet to find our audiences anymore. Times have changed. So all your different audiences. Do you find that like the Who's Line audience is a little bit different than the Let's Make a Deal audience? It's different than this audience and that audience and the Bold and the Beautiful audience. Like, is it? 
you know, are you sort of the middle of this pinwheel of all these audiences, or is there a lot of crossover? There, there's overlap depending on the project. That you know, a, a, a lot of the people that watch the weirdest crossover is Housewives and Let's Make a Deal, mm-hmm. and stoned college students and let's make a deal <laughs> and kids home on vacation little little kids then there's an overlap from the college kids to to whose line and then any of the sitcom stuff like when i was a semi-regular on on how i met your mother that's just broad um and some of the dramas that i've done that's that's niche like colony was a sci-fi thing so yeah. only these cats would get that yeah and um so i think i'm kind of like the um the elephant and the three blind men that that each had a different take on what what the elephant was, yep. and they didn't know quite what it was, but but they knew in their mind what it was. So there there are people that like the improv. There are people that that like the game show comedy. There are people that 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 know the Broadway stuff and that know the sit the sit, sitcom stuff. So I'm I'm lucky that there's a little bit of overlap in everybody, and and the people that don't don't overlap. They they still come to see whatever it is that they like. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's you know, and again, it's a, it's a little baked into being a performer and, and innately wanting people to like you and be happy and like what you're doing. But you know, when you first start out, it's like everyone. I need everyone to like me. Everyone's got to like me. This doesn't work if people don't like me. But then I think the more you do your career, it's like, but well, what do I want to do? You know, like if you want to do a soap opera for a few months, do the soap opera if it makes you happy. If you want to record an album, record an album if it makes you happy. Make a movie. Do this. Do that. And then I think once you're so set and confident and comfortable with yourself and your own choices, the audience will f- fall in line. Like they'll follow you because they, the people who are your true fans, will get. Yes. Oh, this is all a part of a bigger thing, and this is a journey, and this is a fun trip. Bingo. Even industry-wise, I think the big fear is fear that I've had is, well, if I do this thing, then I'll never be one of the cool kids and be on a cool sitcom. And da-da. you know, I, at a certain point, I realize it's like, you know what? They're not paying my bills. Maybe I'm not going to be a cast member on the cool kid um, indie. Uh, sitcom of of the day, but I have people that will come to see me anywhere I go in this country. They will pay m- good money for tickets to come out for an evening to watch me because of whatever the hell it is that they've seen on TV. So that's something that I just had to let go of. That well, the industry will think I'm a ah, you know <laughs> man. I'm uh, to to quote. Uh, the Murtaugh from from Lethal Weapon. I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> I I don't care anymore. I'm going to do what I think is cool, and somebody will come to it. I appreciate they used his character name, by the way. That's that's true. That's that that was the real deal. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Riggs, 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 come here. Riggs, come here. <laughs> is something in your throat, da- Danny Glover? Is something in your throat? I don't know what you're talking about. I need a lozenge. I need a lozenge. That's all he needs. He just uh, all lethal weapon is. He just needs Mel. He just needs Riggs to give him a fucking lozenge. See, this should have been a rewrite where he gets a lozenge. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, you guys! I feel so much better. Oh, I am getting too old for this shit. You know what? I thought I was, but I think I'm the right age for this shit. <laughs> I'm sitting out, on this toilet bowl. I am the perfect right age for this shit. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, what were you? What was the thing you were saying? Right? Was it like people following you around? Like it's. Just sort of knowing that there's 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 real power in being you, and the more you you are, the better off you're going to be. Because just like 
when people say the internet will or Twitter will or this, it's like it's not a person. It's not. It's not run by. There's not even an organized central body. It doesn't. Even, it's like saying <laughs> it's like getting mad. It's like freaking out about what an ant colony is. I mean, you don't know the Twitter council. Yeah, exactly. So like with the industry, it's like the industry. There's no president of Hollywood. The like, show business. Yeah, exactly. You can fucking do whatever you want. Like this is. You know, this is more than ever, this is our time to forge the thing that we want and go, okay, well, you don't get this, but I get it, and I can connect to people that do get it, and we don't fucking need you, and <laughs> industry. I'll, man, and I'll say, say you know, you, you still manage to be an inspiration. Like, like I look at what you... Absolutely. Oh, thanks, man. Absolutely. I look at your hustle, and and I see see what you've carved out for yourself in a in a space where it did not exist. That's just the coolest thing to carve yeah, some I appreciate that. to carve a passion and I remember years ago, I think right right after your first book came out, we we ran into each other some somewhere and I told you that I read it. I think we're at a park. Maybe I had had my little girl with. I think were we in New York? I feel like I was in New York or something. Yeah, I think it was in New York. I was and blown I remember, away that you knew the book. And I knew the book, and in reading your story, because I think I, I'd also met you years earlier when you were describing the first time when you were filled with this angst and you were just, oh, life sucks and this thing and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and I remember meeting you during that time and then reading about what you did and then seeing things. I went, you see? You see? <laughs> things happen. You, yes, you made that happen. You made that happen. It, it'd be very easy for the guy that didn't write the book to a stewed, simmer, sat in his own crap and who knows where that guy would be. So, so I just have to say, as a fan, oh, that's it's so on. cool. Uh, you're, I really appreciate that. I, I honestly, you know, I, I think there was an inherent blessing in not feeling like, and I, I'm sure you feel this way too about not feeling like you fit in anywhere. So I say, like, for anyone who feels like they don't fit in, get excited because it, you know, like because when you are thrust out on the stage, you will figure it out. And the more rejection, you know, it's like I, I feel like. My career, anyway, was just the result of a lot of rejection. It's like, well, I got to make my own stuff. And yours is probably like, I don't think I fit anywhere, so I'm just going to make stuff. And so if we had very early on been placed into the machine, the industry machine, and gone the traditional way, we probably wouldn't have been as fulfilled. We, there probably would have been an expiration date. We wouldn't have learned how to Absolutely. adapt, evolve. And so I think, you know, for both of us, like, what a blessing to not feel like you fit in because then you have to fucking make your own mold. Thank you, the show business. <laughs> Thank you, the show business, for years of rejection. Amen. <laughs> but in general, like, you feel good, you feel happy, you feel like everything, you know, who are – when people tell you, like, they go, you're this, you're that, who are you to you? You know what? Today – Yeah. Because that's what I can – because because that's what I can speak on is the way I feel about today. I feel uh, like a great dad. Um, I feel uh, as soon as I leave leave here, I'm going to go meet 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 my daughter at the mall, and we're going to have lunch, and then go to an appointment and hang out. Um, I feel like a guy who uh, is working on his craft to to sound all artsy, and has really rediscovered in the past few years passion as opposed to fighting and going on autopilot i've 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 discovered my passion and my passion is to create my my passion is to create things that live outside of me that i don't have have to be in and 
and and I love that. That's the and I get inspiration from other people. Um, there was a time when I felt like I was being a hater because I didn't like what was going on with me. So fuck everybody, mm-hmm. even if they were friends of mine. Well, fuck fuck that dude. I'm so mad. <laughs> you got a walk of fame. Got a star. Screw you and your star. I don't want to watch your movie. You suck. <laughs> I don't like you anyway. Now I can give give love and appreciate and go. Yeah, I'm happy for you because what's mine is mine. Good. Well, just you know. I just I, I hope you internalize and appreciate the fact that whatever whatever you set out to do as a performer, you've achieved it. And now Crazy, everything else man. is just sort of like bonus. You know, you just get to do it because it's fun. Not because like you're not gonna exist if it doesn't, you know. Right. It's like you just get to do it because it's fun. No, my name's in and the history book somewhere. So <laughs> so I think it's pretty cool. Um, is there anything you want to plug, promote, anything you want people to know about besides <laughs> Let's Make a Deal, Bold and the Beautiful, um, Whose Line, Coming Back? Um, we have, uh, you know, like I said, look for these these projects. I'm really, really excited. I wish I could talk more about them. But as you know, uh, when when things are in development somewhere, that's the curse of death is to yeah. actively. But, yeah. but it's I would have never thought I would have had three separate things that people have bought and said, we like this. Let's make it. That is I I wake up grinning. So so definitely in the next year, year and a half, look for my name to pop up as the creator and executive producer of a couple different uh, shows, one of them a drama. And um, I've got a new record coming out first quarter of next year. So if you're an R&B fan and I'm working on a comedy um, R&B record as well. Um, you're working on a comedy record, a comedy R&B record? Mm-hmm. What what is that about? I need to know more about that. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be tied into that uh, to, to the that, thing to that young gifted and whack. Cool. So so I'm, that's a whole project. So it's kind of like I'm making a throwback record that would have played on the radio in the '80s and kind of been the the, the soundtrack to to this uh, nerdy little black kid's life. So oh, so I'll be fantastic. writing those songs. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on everything. Well, thanks. And, man. Uh, it's always great to run into you and. I, you know, like this just reminds me, like we got to just sit down and hang out more often, even when there aren't microphones around. That's what I absolutely agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. All right, good. Thank you so much for being here, Wayne Brady. Thank you, sir. Bye, y'all. The end. I just started the recorder back because I just handed Wayne Brady the D&D book that my friend Kyle Newman was a part of, Art and Arcana. Hey, Kyle. And... It just unlocked this insane story that I wish I had heard on the podcast about a tiny little Wayne Brady in history <laughs> who made his own D&D modules, for fuck's sake. Because I didn't have any money, and the guys at school, I was too nerdy for the, for the cool nerds. So instead, I went home, and I got, got notebook paper, made my own graph paper, made, made my own little wax figurines, and I wrote up my own adventures, and I had to teach kids in my neighborhood to play. So the only people that would play with me was this one um, one uh, Mexican kid named Car- Carlos who thought he was a ninja. <laughs> and then there was another kid named Eddie from down the street who who was a bit of a gangbanger. And, um, and together – oh, and my friend Jacques. And we spent half a summer playing my bootleg DVD, and by the end of the summer – they were fully invested. D and D, your bootleg D and D. Yeah, like my bootleg D and D and me making up rules. Oh, and another guy named James from down the street, and uh, and it, it was just so cool that that was my little group during the summer. 
God, that's fantastic that you made your own D&D. Yeah, man, you don't need graph paper. Make your own graph paper. Make your own axis. Make your own graph paper is a fucking great message for life. You know what? When you don't, when life doesn't give you graph paper, you make your own fucking graph paper. Absolutely. And I've just, I had two copies of this book, and I've just gifted you the Dungeons and Dragons Art and Arcana book, and uh, and it was so great to wa- like watching you flip through it and just see your eyes light up and the recognition. And so, because oh, all of the the memories came came back. All this this book, I'm going to read the hell out of it. So thank you. Like just know that this is a. Uh, a uh, gift that I will def- <laughs> definitely appreciate. There's this thing that I've been trying to get together, but I've been too busy. But I think it would just make me laugh and make me happy. Um, I want to do this thing called R&B D&D. <laughs> you, get a, you get to sign that book. R, that's, a, that's a fucking great idea. Where I get all these, you know, just random music people to play a game of D&D, but I want the soundtrack to go along and and as DM, you know, you can do certain things to make sure that there's a that there's a musical performance or something as you enter the tavern and just a way to just have these people that you would never go, why the hell is what is Bobby Brown doing Playing D and D, okay. I'm gonna with t- like guys that are D D and D fans. I can help you manifest this idea if you're serious about it, because I know the D and D people, like the people who, the company that runs it and owns it. Dude, I think it would be so because it'd be like one of those parties. It's almost like like at midnight, where the whole excuse of it is just it's going to be dumb. Yeah, but it would be so fun and stupid and like almost like like a variety show. A great way to play the the game. Get calm conversation out, and you could break new artists if if you wanted to. What a fucking great idea! Well, if you like it, you just you just said the words R and B D and D. I'm like, why hasn't somebody done that yet? <laughs> well, if you like it, I would gladly do it with you. Well, I, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna give you my info, but just the initials made me laugh. And then once I got past the point of it, went, oh, you know what? It's not just a funny, a funny initial sounding. This actually could be entertaining. That's the that's the, the the hook of it is that the title is great, and then on top of that, there's a substance to the idea. It's not just a sketch. It's not just like a SNL sketch, right? It's, not just it's a like sketch. a real thing that people would watch. I think that's fucking great. That could be like uh, carpool karaoke for nerds. <laughs> that's <laughs> people who like our. That's that's the perfect pitch, and <laughs> and I'm thinking that it's like guys like uh, now. This is when I feel old, but I understand the market. You you have guys that are young and savvy like uh you know like, like that one rapper little Lil, Lil Yachty yeah huge fan base the whole thing you bring someone like him on of course he doesn't know how to play the damn game and do the whole thing but what if like what if he actually did and he's truly a nerd and you can ask someone about I guarantee being you're a nerd gonna get some guys on there and then you're gonna find out like oh they're fucking Drake has played D and D they're really into really? shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I read someplace, Drake has definitely played played D and D, and there are people that if you find those folks that lock in with the younger audience, and then sometimes you can get an old school act that has a lot of appeal. Like I would love to get Snoop on, and it'd be funny to watch him smoking up, and then and then ask him him to play to play a game. Yeah, and, you know, like even if guys come on and they're posturing, and like about halfway through, I bet you they would start to like. Lean in and like get into it. <laughs> oh yeah, like, fucking like really lock into it before because if the, the the magic of it is if you're because it takes so long to play if you're there for a couple hours, you can't 
keep a facade up for that long and still pay attention to what's going on. So it would drop. And I think that's where the secret sauce of that show is, is just like watching that moment where you're like, it just dropped. And then they're like locked in and they're playing. That would be amazing. That yeah. would be amazing. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we turned this back on for a little addendum to the end to hear about your D&D module and uh, make your own graph paper, people. That was the ID10 Team Podcast number 1006 with Wayne Brady. This is Word Salad Wrap. And I feel very compelled to talk about two different things that were touched upon in the episode. Number one, uh, pursuing avenues that you never would have expected. Not just Bob from Wellbred in Los Alamos, uh, who changed his life. I mean, I probably wasn't on a dime, but for the for all intents and purposes, it was on a dime. He completely changed careers. And then also Wayne, who two times was not open to things that ended up becoming amazing things that changed his life and ended up um, flourishing in ways he never could have possibly imagined. That was Let's Make a Deal, and that was auditioning for Who's Line. And so be open to things. When your natural defenses first go up and you go, I don't think I could do that, go, well, wait a minute. If I could, maybe what if I did? And not just saying yes to things in life, but also, as Wayne said, to say yes and, you know, maybe take an improv class. It could, you know, even if even if you think you're it's not the thing for you or that you're not amazing at it, it still could open you up in ways that could change your life, that you can take those tools you learn in the improv class out into the real world and, you know, and sort of infuse them into your daily choices. But also, um Talking about Wayne and, and, and the idea of um, identity and uh, on ID Tenti, but uh, if you do a lot of different things and or if you do something that's different and new and people don't know how to categorize it or how to categorize you, I think that's usually a really good sign because it means that you're doing something fresh. And there's, there's often a lot of resistance to new, fresh things. Much in the same way that you resist making new and fresh choices in your life, other people, the world, the internet, will resist new and fresh ideas if you put something out there that they don't necessarily have a frame of reference for. So if you do a bunch of different things, they might try to categorize you as one thing. Don't listen to them. <laughs> that might mean you're on the right path. But the more things you do, the more different things you pull together, make up the unique creature that is you, that is different to anyone else uh, in the world. So embrace all of that. Don't be afraid. If someone says, I don't get that. That's weird. That's new. You actually, that might be the best thing ever because it means you're on on the right path. I've done things before. I've, you know, like done work stuff before. People are like, what are you doing? That's dumb. I mean, look, this is the dumbest and most obvious example, but when we started Talking Dead, this is dumb. Why would anyone start a show that talks about another show? This is stupid. Maybe you still feel that way. I don't know. But it seems to have worked. And then within a year or so, people were trying to copy the idea. (laughs) After shows were popping up all over the place. Some of the same people that said ours was that we were stupid for doing it. So it just... If you get that kind of resistance, like, I don't know what this is, or this is dumb, or I don't know, what is this? I can't tell what this is. You might actually be on the right track. Maybe you're not. I don't know. But I'm just giving you this bit of advice so that you don't immediately bail out on something just because of an initial reaction. Initial reactions are protective. 
initial reactions are the brain's like immediate defense response but initial reactions don't always think they don't always have the ability to think things through they're just trying to protect you sometimes it's your gut telling you that a situation is bad and that's good you want to listen to that but you know with your creative endeavors maybe that sometimes that initial response is a um a defense mechanism that isn't necessarily <laughs> helpful so when you do get the defense mechanism shields that go up, just take a step back back and ask yourself, wait a minute, is this really a bad or unsafe idea or is it just that it's new and different and there's no frame of reference for it? it should I pursue this anyway? Is there a way to pursue this? Is there a way that I can manifest this in, in different and unique ways? And there's a good chance that a percentage of the time the answer is going to be yeah. And so, <laughs> like I said before, if you start putting stuff out there and people don't understand it or they don't know what it is or they shit on it or whatever, get excited. <laughs> As Lydia says sometimes, she'll go, get excited because she's just a beam of positivity and, and light. But, um, but it, it, it should give you some comfort and also let you know that uh, you might actually be on to something. So don't give up so easily. Um, trust your passions, pull all the different things together that you love, be the most unique version of you that you can be. And, uh, don't fucking listen to, <laughs> don't listen to the, the haters and the, uh, shitters on people who shit on things. Don't just, just don't, it, I know it can poke at your insecurities or it sort of pokes at like, Oh, I didn't, I don't, this is what I didn't want. No one wants to be told that what they're doing is dumb. But if you can give yourself some space and separate that from a minute from yourself, that from yourself for a minute, focus on the process and focus on what you're passionate about, and not so much as on the result of what other people are going to say. Then, um, like I said, you might be onto something. So, thanks for listening. I appreciate you, and I'll see you in your ears real soon. Uh, and also, watch who's learning is it anyway on the CW. And uh, please, um, if you think I suck, uh, don't tell me. <laughs> Because sometimes it's hard to follow my own advice. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.